Xanax and I were good friends through the last few years of the 20th century. A few more miles. We're almost there. Stay awake. So like I said, Xanax and I have a long history. I shot myself in the hand when I was on it. I wrecked more than one car while I was on it. Don't drive while you're on it, by the way. And I woke up in jail multiple times having no idea what had happened the night before because, you guessed it, Xanax. But here's what's wild. I should have been taking it all along, but I shouldn't have been getting it off the streets and at massive doses. I was taking two milligram bars when it would have been much more appropriate for me at that age to be on about a quarter of a milligram at a time. And I was using it recreationally, along with a bunch of friends, and we were all just shoveling it down our throats. In fact, we had no idea what we were taking, but it sounded really cool. Xanax, two X's, and this is in the era of ecstasy, a term that was used to rebrand MDMA. And that's kind of the point of most of the episodes we do about drugs on this podcast. Without the right information and the right professionals on your team, like doctors and therapists, we're all bound to get in trouble when we find something that works really well, but we're told that we can't have it, or it's romanticized. I still take benzodiazepines on a relatively regular basis nowadays, but at lower doses, and much less consistently. Despite the therapy I've already gone through, at times I wake up with night terrors that are related, in large part, to my experience in prison. And benzodiazepines work really well to allow me to go back to sleep without having a huge effect in the morning. So I know I sound like a broken record if you listen to the podcast a lot, but we have to rethink drugs and the policies we have about them. To some of us, they're lifesavers. I'm your host, Ben Boyce. Welcome to the Dr. Junkie Show. Today I'm going to talk about benzodiazepines, and relatedly, alcohol and barbiturates, because it turns out that they all target the same area of the brain, albeit in different ways. Before I get started, I want to remind listeners that I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm also not a medical doctor, and this podcast isn't here to offer medical advice. So talk to your doctor about your medicine and any changes you might want to make to it. I realize this is hard during the ongoing war on drugs, but with benzodiazepines, you have the benefit of legality. Doctors prescribe benzos every day. And since I'm not a medical doctor or a neuroscientist, I also don't have to use the confusing terms and lingo that complicate simple explanations of neurology. Western medicine's history of anxiolytics, or anti-anxiety drugs, begins in 1864 with the synthesis of a drug called melanoluria, the world's first barbiturate. It was created by Bayer, the same company that would later mass-produce and sell heroin. By the early 1900s, barbiturates were available across the country in pharmacies and through mail order. But barbiturates were, and still are, pretty dangerous at therapeutic doses. The dose you need to feel the effects is not much less than the overdose, the amount that might be lethal. On September 18, 1970, Jimi Hendrix went to sleep and never woke up. As often happens in celebrity deaths, the story got a bit foggy. But it's alleged by quite a few people, including at times his girlfriend who he was with that night, that he accidentally took an overdose of barbiturates because they were labeled for a different country. He was in England at the time. Jimmy wasn't the last person, nor the first, to get in trouble with either barbiturates or benzodiazepines. Somewhere over the rainbow, way 
Margaret Sullivan in 1960, Marilyn Monroe in 1962, and as you just heard Judy Garland singing, she died in 1969, all related to barbiturates. And for every person that had a problem and overdosed or died, there were dozens that used them successfully and who we never really heard about. Keith Richards at times talked about eating barbiturates for breakfast in the 1970s. And while we're on the subject, let's talk about pop culture and the way that benzodiazepines and barbiturates have made their way into popular narratives. Here's Keith Richards' most famous band, The Rolling Stones. And it wasn't just rock and roll, and it wasn't just the 1970s. Through the 90s and into the early 2000s, we continued to lose famous people, along with our loved ones. Heath Ledger, Amy Winehouse, Whitney Houston, Brittany Murphy, all allegedly had benzos in their systems when they died. And our dominant cultural narratives reflect our obsession. From Little Wayne's I Feel Like Dying in 2007. I am a prisoner locked up behind Zanette bars. Gucci Mane's Stupid Wild in 2009. And there's Eminem's Relapse album in 2009. Wales performing a Tribe Called Quest's award tour. This is from 2010. And more recently, Earl Sweatshirt in 2015 with a song called Green. Xanax is Hollywood. Straight up. You need to take some Xanax. Xanax. Isn't that for anxiety? It's good for all psychological problems. Xanax basically just makes you feel good. That's why it works for everything. Now remember, before our digression down cultural memory lane, we were at the point where barbiturates were on the market, but benzodiazepines hadn't yet been synthesized. And barbiturates were much more dangerous to use because the therapeutic potential was very small. It was way too easy to overdose. So pharma was looking for a safer alternative almost as soon as barbiturates hit the market. They found them in benzodiazepines, drugs named after their molecular structure. The first to be invented was Librium in 1955, and as often happens when humans discover a new psychoactive compound, we quickly got to work modifying it, replicating it, and synthesizing it. Diazepam, also known as Valium, hit the market in 1963, and it's still pretty common today. That's why the war on drugs treated these chemicals so differently than other narcotics, many of which were either natural themselves or could be produced from natural sources. Benzodiazepines were, from the start, pharmaceutical drugs, available only from a pharmacy, and once the 1970 Comprehensive Drug Abuse and Prevention Act went into effect, also only with a prescription written from a legitimate doctor. In other words, unlike marijuana, which can be grown in your backyard, or cocaine, which can be grown in Colombian backyards, or heroin, which can be grown in Afghani backyards, benzo drugs were consumer goods from the first day they hit the market. They supported the status quo system, capitalism, without undermining the oppressive system, white supremacy, which has always been at the roots of our war against drugs. And it worked this way because people of color have always been less able to visit a doctor than white folks. And when they do, they're still less likely than white people to get prescriptions for drugs like benzodiazepines when they need them. In other words, the reasons benzos and barbiturates are treated differently than other chemicals in our war on drugs, the reason they're regulated instead of banned outright, is because the majority of users from day one 
have been middle-class to rich white folks who purchased their drugs from capitalistic retailers. Those aren't the people we put in prison in the United States, not if we can avoid it anyway. Benzodiazepines have a number of effects, and they don't all have the same dosage or the exact same qualities, so don't take a one-size-fits-all approach to using them. But there are some similarities. Generally speaking, at moderate doses, all benzodiazepines cause anxiety relief, lethargy, and a bit of fatigue. At higher doses, they cause impaired motor coordination, dizziness, slurred speech, blurred vision, vertigo, mood swings, and sometimes hostile and erratic behavior. Anyone who's witnessed a bad benzo trip knows that they can be especially difficult to deal with because of the wake-up, go-to-sleep-forget-everything, start-over effects of taking way too much. Hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll understand why that happens. Benzos can be taken orally, sublingually, which is under the tongue, internasally, which is snorting, rectally, or intravenously. But you shouldn't really snort pills like Xanax or Valium because they won't work as well as if you just swallow them. The internasal bioavailability of most pill forms of benzos is pretty low. And you really shouldn't shoot them up either because it's difficult to mix the chalky powder well enough to avoid infections or abscess. But the good news is they work better than most drugs when swallowed. The oral bioavailability, the amount of the drug that makes it past your stomach and actually gets into your bloodstream, is pretty high on most benzos. So just eat them. There's some interesting things about a few of the benzos. Most of them don't break down or metabolize into additional intoxicating substances, but a few of them do. Valium actually breaks down into three different benzos, all of which have their own intoxicating effects. And just like with opioids, marijuana, and cocaine, the metabolites can often be just as intoxicating, or more so, than the drugs themselves. Plus, the half-life of Valium is basically stretched out, since the chemical it's metabolized into is also intoxicating. You should know going in that benzodiazepines have a super long half-life compared to opioids, which is part of the reason why people get into so much trouble when they take the two drugs at the same time. Some benzos, like alprazolam, also known as Xanax, which I was addicted to for a few years, and lorazepam, also known as Ativan, have half-lifes between 6 and 20 hours. Others, like diazepam, also known as Valium, and colazepam, also known as clonopin, have half-lifes of 20 to 80 hours. But most opioids wear off pretty quick, within a few hours. So when users redose on both pills at the same time, they slowly drive their benzo levels up, making it more dangerous each time they take a dose. So on that harm reduction tip, please don't mix your benzos with opioids. It isn't worth any additional buzz you might get, and it can be really dangerous. Opioids and benzos both reduce automatic movements, things like breathing and heartbeat that you don't have to think about. An overdose is much easier when both of these drugs are taken at the same time. It's also worth mentioning that, like many drugs, our ability to metabolize benzos goes down as we get older. After 40 years old, it takes us around 1% longer every year to metabolize Valium. Once benzos are in your bloodstream, they work on a mechanism known as the GABA-A receptor site. GABA is short for gamma-aminobutyric acid. It's a neurotransmitter that works to decrease the likelihood that a neuron fires. Barbiturates and alcohol work on the same site, but in somewhat different ways. Before we jump into benzodiazepines and barbiturates in the brain, we need a super basic understanding of how neurons work. Neurons are separated from the soup of chemicals outside of them by a thin membrane, a skin, and that skin contains doorways that allow positive and negative ions to flow in and out at specific times. Neurons work by turning chemical energy into electrical energy and then shooting that electrical charge down the wire, 
the axon, and onto the next neuron. They all work, to some degree, the same. They remain inactive, or negatively charged, until it's time to send a message onto the next station, and then they rapidly charge, discharge, then return to resting membrane potential, or a state of rest, all in a split second. It happens so fast that a single neuron can complete this entire process hundreds of times in a single second. Now don't forget there's around 100 billion with a B neurons in the human brain. That's a lot of potential connections to be made, more than all of the known stars in the universe, as Timothy Leary was fond of pointing out. If they weren't all in a general state of rest most of the time, our thoughts and movements would be a cacophony, and that is, to some degree, what happens in certain neurological conditions like Parkinson's or CP. The neurons that control muscle movement fire uncontrollably when they aren't in use. They don't remain silent. In a state of resting potential, neurons remain at a slightly negative charge, less than negative 55 millivolts. Remember that number, negative 55 millivolts. It's super important to how neurons work. It's not easy for our neurons to maintain this resting state, by the way, because positively charged potassium, sodium, and calcium ions are all mixed up with negatively charged chloride ions. It's all just floating around in this soup that is us. To maintain that negative charge, below negative 55 millivolts, neurons use pumps to actively push positively charged potassium and sodium out. They maintain a consistent negative charge by getting rid of positively charged ions, by making sure that there are more of them outside than in. So long as the negatively charged chloride ions inside the neuron outnumber the positive charges outside, the neuron can remain below the magic number, negative 55 millivolts, and therefore at rest or resting state. When a neuron fires, whether it's part of a memory you're recalling, or a node in the network that runs your heart, or a command to move your leg as you walk, when a neuron fires, it does so by moving from resting state, remember, that's below negative 55 millivolts, to action potential stage, which begins at negative 55 millivolts and then rapidly increases all the way up to positive 30 millivolts. It happens fast, and it's a self-reinforcing process. When a minor increase presses the voltage above negative 55 millivolts, that's the magic number I said to remember, more channels open, allowing even more positively charged ions to come rushing in, causing the voltage to increase yet more, and causing even more channels to open, and you get it. But once the voltage in the neuron reaches 30 millivolts, a charge is sent down the axon, Again, that's the wire that connects each neuron to the others. And the entire process reverses until the neuron is back to resting state, or less than negative 55 millivolts. Some memories or movements require dozens or even thousands of neurons to fire in combination. And if even one of them fails, the entire movement or memory fails. You can't even get your heart to beat without an organized concert of neural charging, firing, and returning to resting state, all in a split second and all reliant upon that magic number, negative 55 millivolts, because once a neuron reaches that level, there's no stopping it. It shoots all the way up, and then back down, and then stays below negative 55 millivolts again. But it also only takes one misfire to get the entire system up and running when we really don't need it. And that's how anxiety works. There are quite a few neurotransmitters, chemicals that communicate messages between neurons, that work to either turn the voltage up or down in individual neurons. And they do this by allowing more or less of a specific charge in. Let more positively charged potassium or sodium inside the neuron, and the charge goes up a little bit. 
it gets closer to that tipping point of negative 55 millivolts when the rapid charge, discharge, return to resting state event kicks off. Let more negatively charged chloride in and the resting state voltage goes down. It gets even farther from that negative 55 millivolts tipping point that sets the all or nothing process off. But always, negative 55 millivolts is the setting off point. If neurons reach this voltage, they'll rapidly charge, discharge, and then return to a resting state. That's basically how neurons work in an incredibly simplified nutshell. So go back to where we started. One of the neurotransmitters that can cause voltage to vary is GABA. When everything's normal, a signal sent down one neuron can cause GABA to be released and subsequently bind to another. Remember, neurons don't actually touch one another. They communicate messages by turning an electrical signal back into a chemical signal at the axon terminal at the end of the neuron. You might think of neurons like train tracks that wind up in a central station. There are often multiple routes that end at the starting point of another route. There's often multiple neuron pathways, or axon terminals, that end where another neuron begins. One of those trains, or neurons, might bring a trainload of GABA, another a trainload of dopamine, or some other neurotransmitter. And all of these chemicals get released into the station, or the space between neurons called the synapse, and then soaked up by the departing train, or the new neuron, where they work to raise or lower the voltage inside that train car as it sits in the station, waiting for the signal to depart. That signal to depart, of course, is negative 55 millivolts. See, I told you that number was important. GABA is a neuroinhibitor. When it reaches the neuron it's targeting, it causes chloride channels to open, allowing negatively charged chloride to flood into the neuron. You can think of a lot of reasons this might happen naturally without any drugs. You talk to a family member who's been avoiding you for a long time and the stress you've been feeling over a broken relationship goes away. Or you complete a long project and find yourself feeling like a weight has been lifted off your shoulders. That feeling is likely the result of GABA flooding neurons in your amygdala that were on high alert during your project or your family separation, but that have now been told to take a break, shut it down, and relax. Once that negative charge from chloride shows up, it takes a lot more positive charge to reach the tipping point that sets off the all-or-nothing event. It takes more juice to bump the neuron up to the threshold of negative 55 millivolts. So while you're stressed about your project, you may have been firing anxiety-related neurons quite a bit. You were hitting that tipping point and feeling the effects of anxiety. But once GABA allows chloride in, the pre-thought charge drops, and thoughts that might have sparked anxiety before no longer provide enough input, enough positive charge, to reach the tipping point. In other words, GABA makes it more difficult for neurons to fire. Back to the train metaphor. As GABA and other neurotransmitters enter the new train, or bind to the receptor site on receiving neurons, they affect the likelihood that the signal gets through because the outgoing train, like a neuron, is only activated in an all-or-nothing event whenever the voltage gets above negative 55 millivolts. Each GABA that gets on the train, or binds to the receptor site, lowers the voltage just a little bit because it opens the gate for a negatively charged chloride ion to enter as well it brings a negative charge along with it. The lower the resting state voltage because the chloride gate is opened, the more positive input it will eventually take to reach that tipping point of negative 55 millivolts. And you can imagine a situation where the voltage is lowered so much that any incoming message to depart doesn't have enough positive charge to get the train, or the neuron, to negative 55 millivolts. And that's what happens with overdose. 
if the neurons that become overwhelmed with chloride and can't fire are in a line of neurons responsible for your heart or your liver, those organs will probably die. Okay, so that's GABA in a super simplified nutshell. GABA is released by nearby synapses and binds to GABA-A receptor sites all the time. And the result is a negative net charge, a reduction in the likelihood that the corresponding neuron will fire. And along with that, a feeling of relaxation, of calm, of reduced anxiety. That's because the neurons with GABA-A receptor sites are largely localized in the cortex in the limbic system, including the brain's fear center, the amygdala. When GABA interrupts the amygdala's attempt to send out messages of anxiety and fear, the result is a reduction in anxiety and fear. Now to understand the actions of benzos and barbiturates, and to some degree alcohol, we should try another metaphor. This time I want you to envision five linebackers standing in a tight circle over a hole, so tight that from overhead you couldn't drop a penny into the hole. It would bounce off one of the linebackers instead. But if you could get one or more of those linemen to back off just a little bit, you could open the hole up and let pennies or nickels or whatever you want drop into the channel below. The pennies, in this case, are negatively charged chloride ions in the hole, you guessed it, GABA-A receptor sites. Each group of linemen, or each glycoprotein subunit, has at least two GABA receptor sites and a single benzo receptor site. When GABA binds to its site, the linemen spread out and allow a chloride ion to flow into the hole beneath. The result, as we already discussed, is that it's harder for any additional action to raise the voltage in that neuron enough to set it off. The train doesn't leave the station. The neuron doesn't fire. Benzodiazepine drugs bind to GABA-A receptors and basically make them stickier, so that when GABA comes along, it's more likely to bind and cause the chloride channel to open. Benzodiazepines also make GABA stick to the receptor site longer, which, in turn, allows more negatively charged chloride to enter the neuron again, making the neuron less likely to fire. Now just like with any drug, when you take benzos, there's some things that can get you in trouble. Benzodiazepines are metabolized in the liver via the cytochrome P450 system and subsequently broken down to the point where they're water-soluble and then urinated out. That means that anything that upsets the action of P450, like oral contraceptive pills, antifungals, and some antibiotics, will effectively increase the potency of benzodiazepines, so be careful. And on the flip side, there's over-the-counter and pharmaceutical drugs that can increase the action of cytochrome P450, including St. John's wort, which will make your benzos wear off faster. Much like naloxone for opioid overdose, which works by pushing the dangerous opioid off the receptor site and replacing it with a non-psychoactive alternative, a drug called flumizanil acts to block the benzoreceptor sites in its giving during benzo overdoses. I said this earlier in the episode, but I want to repeat it. Don't snort your benzos. They're not water-soluble, so you'll waste most of your drugs. And don't shoot them. They won't work right anyway, and they don't mix well with water. If you want them to kick in faster, crushing them and putting them under your tongue is the best way to make that happen. And since these drugs are among the few that are regulated and not outlawed outright, find a doctor you can trust who will cover your ass and write you a prescription. Having medical professionals on your team is invaluable. It's what we should be working towards as a culture. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm your host, Ben Boyce. The After Episode Detox. Many of us use benzos to come off of other drugs, like long-term opioids or short-term cocaine. But if you're trying to stop using benzos, consider some of the other things that decrease anxiety. 
It's your amygdala, fight, flight, or freeze that's giving you some trouble, so consider giving it what it wants, like exercise. Working out is a lot like running away. And as always, cognitive behavioral therapy and mindful meditation are two of the most valuable tools I've found, and I suggest them to everybody that finds themselves going through a situation where they're using too much drugs. Find a doctor and a therapist you can trust and keep navigating your neural network. It gets better, especially when you have people on your team, but stay at it. Oh, and one more thing. The name of barbiturates, it's hard to even say, barbiturates, I didn't put this in the body of the episode because I had a hard time verifying it, but it's one of two stories. Either Bayer, the guy who originally synthesized them, was in a bar where a lot of miners hung out and the patron saint of miners, St. Barbara, was on the wall. That's his story anyway. Or, since barbiturates were initially synthesized from apples and urine, yeah, true story, the story Bayer's employees told is that the woman who he originally got the urine from was named Barbara. Anyway, do with that what you want. 